Welcome to the Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek podcast series. Big tech companies face increased scrutiny from a new Congress eager to address concerns over fair competition and consumer data protection. Al Motter and Greta Joins, in a conversation moderated by Drew Lippman, explain the tech lash against big Silicon Valley companies. Al and Greta address the many issues confronting tech titans in this new era of heightened regulation, including congressional oversight which could be affected by 2020 campaigns. Welcome to another Brownstein podcast. We're going to take on tech issues today. I have my colleagues here, Greta Joins from the R side, Al Motter from the D side. I'm Drew Littman. I'm going to be moderating and we're going to get right into it. Greta, can I start with you? Sure. It appears that we're seeing a backlash against big tech companies, a, a tech lash, if you will. Is that what you're seeing on the Hill or with the agencies currently? Yes. Um, I, I do think that there's a lot of, one, um, I think we're facing a lot of repercussions from um, Zuckerberg's testimony on the Hill. I think a lot of um, senators and, and House members feel that he was, at the, at the best, not 100% truthful in his testimony, and he did his best to kind of make members and senators look dumb. Which mm. I think if you watch the testimony again, all of his follow-up questions were, I don't quite understand what you're talking about, Senator. Can you explain that more? Knowing full well they couldn't explain the specifics behind Facebook's algorithms. So then the question just kind of died. I mean, I think it was probably a strategy on his part, and it wasn't a dumb one. But I, I do think that there's a lot of folks who are unhappy about how that turned out and, and blame Mark for that. Mm-hmm. Um, I I do think Facebook is probably at the center of this. I think Google's probably the next one. And third, I you know, I think Twitter's still in this quite a bit. Um, and Amazon to some extent, but that seems to be more from the Democratic side than the Republican. Mm-hmm. Al, thoughts on the tech clash? I think it's real. You know, if you think about the last 25 years of tech policy in Washington, there's been a presumption, Drew, that... The government ought to leave well enough alone, that it's an industry and a space that's been proliferating, it's been growing terrifically, it's been creating jobs in America, distinguishing our country as a technological leader in the world, and really breaking new boundaries at the speed of Moore's Law. And what seems to have changed in the past year or so is that that implicit trust has been broken, that you have major members of Congress, as Greta alluded calling out CEOs as liars. And if the trust has been broken and the view that self-regulation is sufficient has been shattered, then you do have a potential tech lash from a policy perspective in which members of Congress, policymakers in the administration may be seeking to up the regulatory ante, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Uh, Greta, what issues are are triggering the tech lash. You mentioned Zuckerberg's performance as a witness at hearings, rubbing people the wrong way. But but what got him called out here? What are the underlying substantive issues? I think there's a lot of people post-Cambridge Analytica who are having trouble wrapping their heads around with exactly what kind of company Facebook is mm. and what kind of company they want to be, right? So is, is Facebook a media company? Is it an advertising company? Is it a data aggregation company? I, like, I don't think people quite understand that. And 
what Zuckerberg's testimony, I think, specifically spoke to, and I think if you try to get to the point of it, is he was saying, we don't sell your data. And that's true. They're not taking Greta Joins' data and selling it to Almater mm-hmm. directly. Mm-hmm. What they're doing is they're taking everything they know about me, mashing it together, and then creating a product which they're either sharing for free to a partner or they are selling that aggregation of data. Mm-hmm. And that's well and good, but that's not how they're portraying themselves to folks in D.C., and to the public. And I think there's just, there's all, the, the mistrust is building. And I don't think that they're doing everything that they can be doing here to kind of build that back, especially with the far left and the far right who are really sounding the alarms on privacy mm-hmm. here on the regulatory level. So I think you made an interesting segue just now. You mentioned Cambridge Analytica. You were referring to sort of nefarious use of, of social media, misleading use, and you segued from there to aggregation of individuals' data, which is a privacy issue. So those might be considered two separate issues, or they may be two issues that can't be separated. Al, your thoughts? Well, again, I I think it goes back to the trust paradigm that I was talking about, because with Cambridge Analytica and with aggregation of data, albeit anonymous, you have companies creating structures that monetize people's activities or seek to influence people's political views and actions in a way that no one anticipated or believed was even happening. Again, so that goes back to the trust. It's not actually deliberately nefarious toward the individual in terms of the privacy piece, um, and their lax oversight of the misuse of their platform during the 2016 election and beyond is not born out of malfeasance, but it shows that they've betrayed the trust that government has given them to act in everybody's interests through self-regulation. So, Al, if you were still working, say, for the Senate Commerce Committee, what would be your next steps, taking all this in, but but feeling like it was your prerogative or your right or your responsibility to act on it? You know, over the years, Drew, uh, the Congress has ceded much of its substantive regulatory authority to the agencies, in part because of a belief that legislators and staff have a difficult time grappling with these complex technological platforms like a Facebook or an Amazon, a Google, so to speak. So I think at least during this current context, the most likely outcome would be empowering the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, empowering the Department of Justice to engage in stronger regulatory oversight, whether it's a privacy or competition behavior. You know, right now, for example, in the competition space, you can only Um, For example, preclude a merger or challenge a merger if it substantially lessens competition. There are now senators like Amy Klobuchar who has suggested legislation that says actually the burden should be on the companies to prove that they don't hurt competition and this test should be lessened. Mm. It shouldn't be substantially impacts competition. It should be materially impacts, which essentially means it impacts it. Lower threshold, in other words. Yeah. And I think that would be what, if you asked the question if I was up there, those are the types of things I'd be working on. And she occupies a special position, Senator Klobuchar, right? On the Judiciary Committee? Precisely. She's the uh, ranking member of the Antitrust Subcommittee, which is, I would note, antitrust and competition and and consumer uh, policy. So, yes, I think there's a lot of activity that could occur, and it's not just Amy. Uh, Senator Ron Wyden has a very stringent privacy bill out, which would um, penalize 
companies up to 4% of their corporate revenue, uh, giving the FTC the authority mm-hmm. to do mm-hmm. that, um, which would give the commission the authority to impose double-digit year criminal penalties on individual executives. So there is a heightened interest in action in this space, at least on the Democratic side. And, and you mentioned the full name of the antitrust subcommittee. That's what the committee is generally referred to as the antitrust subcommittee, but staffers like to remind you just how broad their jurisdiction is. But you mentioned competition advisedly. It's not just antitrust, right? Exactly. I mean, competition in the antitrust space is about, does it affect markets and price and and competitors? But competition um, affects consumers. Competition affects platforms. If you look Mm -hmm. at Amazon's behavior over the past 20 years, they've engaged in what traditionally would be called predatory pricing without engaging in the harm that typically implicates antitrust enforcement, which is then moving to price increases, which are anti-competitive. Instead, what they've done is they've engaged in predatory pricing, low pricing to undercut competitors and gain market share to enable growth across a myriad platforms, which in turn then squeeze out others' ability to play in the space and give them increasing market share across all sorts of platforms, media, technology, and otherwise. So, Greta, following up on something that Al just mentioned, is this problematic from a conservative, from a Republican point of view, that what Amazon is doing, what would be the beginning of a complaint, is simply lowering prices for consumers. I mean, consumers don't mind the lower prices, right? And the service is pretty good, too. Stuff gets delivered really fast. And yet there are concerns about Amazon's larger business plan, strategy, size. You know, I think, I don't think conservatives are as concerned about Amazon as some Democrats wish they were. Um, you know, I think that Amazon feels like a real business to to uh-huh. conservatives, right? You need a good, Amazon can deliver it to you. What makes conservatives concerned, I think, is specifically within the tech community, one, the belief that tech hates conservative and hates Republicans and is doing their best to use algorithms to undermine their ability to, um, you know, get information out there to their supporters, and also just not understanding how that works. Amazon is an easy process for a conservative to understand. It's pretty transparent. It's just retail. Right. right. It's just being delivered to you in a different way. Right. How Facebook makes money, how Twitter is making money, how Google is making money, all of these things are not they're they're not in front of your face and they're not easy to understand. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I don't mean that. I think that sounds like a simplistic argument. But in the same way, I do think that um, now that we're past the tax issue, which Amazon is really dealing with with state and local mm-hmm. taxes, now that we've kind of moved beyond that argument, I don't think conservatives are as revved up as as they potentially were a few years ago. And that that. Uh, resonate that has the resonance of, of old arguments about L.L. Bean's catalog business. It was essentially it's essentially the same issue. Yeah. So you know, I we'll, we'll see um, kind of if that changes. Uh, you know, I I do think Amazon becoming a bigger player in D.C. just because of their geographic location and moving to Northern Virginia. I mm. think maybe that could change the dynamic a little bit. But um, as of right now, it, I, it's not something I hear conservatives talk a lot about. You know, all of these companies, and I'll refer to the four big, the FANG companies, right? Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, Google, all have one thing in common, which is that they've made things better for consumers of their information and their products. Amazon makes it faster for you to get what you want, and you can do it in your bathrobe. 
Facebook makes it easier to communicate with long friends, and you can keep up with your, with folks. Netflix makes it easier to watch content from the comfort of your living room, and Google makes it easier to find information. For a long time, that was wonderful. Now what's happening, as Greta's alluded to, is people didn't act, don't actually know what lies beneath, right? Is Amazon doing that, but then also excluding great new entrants, which could make things better because of their massive platform? Is Google preferencing its search engine results to the detriment of competitors in the marketplace? Is Facebook turning a blind eye to revenue opportunities when those opportunities tend to bias the electorate Mm -hmm. by uh, putting in false information into our discourse. Mm -hmm. And so the question is, should they be given a free pass or will policymakers say, we need to take that look beneath and figure out whether any action needs to be taken? And policymakers could mean uh, members of Congress or it could mean regulators, as you suggested earlier. Yes. And I think this is going to come to the fore quickly. You've got the 2020 presidential election, unbelievably so, is already off and running. Right. Kamala Harris, Cory Booker, Amy Klobuchar are three members of the Senate Judiciary Committee, all of whom have great experience in this space and think along the lines of what I've been trying to articulate. Add in Elizabeth Warren, who's already announced, who started this movement Mm -hmm. in the path toward the Democrats' Better Deal initiative a year and a half ago. And you have four very prominent, well-spoken individuals who are going to be fighting to uh, out-compete each other with respect to the new progressive agenda with respect to competition policy. So competition policy, a, a big field for Democrats to play and also be not really a defined area. And uh, I would say vitally, um, not an area that's dependent on government funding, unlike a lot of other areas where Democrats want policy changes. It, that's very true. And if, you, if I might add one more thing, it all fits into the unrest in our electorate that has yet to be solved. Hmm. If you think about the 2016 election, and the favorability of Bernie Sanders, Ted Cruz, and Donald Trump, the three of them received by far the majority of votes cast in the primaries. They were all saying the same thing, that Washington is broken and the system is rigged. Well, that's what Elizabeth Warren's mm-hmm. saying right now. That's what Bernie Sanders is going to say if he gets in the race. That's what Kirsten Gillibrand said when she announced and said it's rigged against people. Well, what do these fan companies do? When you look what lies beneath, there's a potential view that they, too, are rigged against consumers, against competition, against fair policy. And I think the Democrats believe it's an untested theory that regulating big tech and a new, more robust competition policy is sexy politics, mm. yet to be tested. And, and let me ask this question, now that you've mentioned the FANG companies. How do the interests of those large companies differ or the position differ in this context from the small to medium-sized, but also prominent internet companies? Is there a divergence? Well, back to the rigged notion, they spent, I did some research before this, apparently $50 million, those four companies, lobbying uh, the government uh, last year. Hmm. So the small companies don't do that. No, it's <laughs> so certainly so, true. So they clearly think that their interests have diverged yeah, uh, yeah. And, and that they need to protect them. Yeah. So it's only the biggest companies who, who are playing and maybe learn something from the Microsoft example when Microsoft had problems, uh, competition issues, problems with regulators, and I think no D.C. office, as I recall. Absolutely. Same with um, a number of those companies. Uh, and then once they suffered the 
ignominy of the major antitrust defeat, they staffed up and now have one of the more robust operations in Washington. Right. I think when you look back to Microsoft, though, in those days, people understood what Microsoft was. And you kind of <laughs> knew that Microsoft was this behemoth, right? It was always in your face. It was on your work computer. Like, what Google and Facebook and, you know, these other big tech players is they're always like, we're, we're the good guys. You should just trust us. And I, I, and I think that we've turned the table and that regulators and policymakers out here are saying, you know what, we don't. And, and how, what that ends up turning into in terms of legislation or regulatory changes I think is still yet to be determined. But I, I do think that you've seen a dramatic shift in the past 8 to 12 months on, on how, how these companies are viewed in D.C. Mm-hmm. So the Q ratings have declined, as, yeah. as they say, talking about potential endorsers. You know, take Google as an example. So they have a search engine, which enables people to figure out all manner of things. Say you go to a new city, and you're trying to figure out a place to go eat. The most logical thing is on your phone, Google, restaurants. What you don't know is that the way that they provide search options is anti-competitive with respect to competitors that do the same thing. So Yelp might provide you with restaurants that have been reviewed by dozens, if not hundreds of people, but Google will provide you with answers that have fewer reviews but are preferenced given their algorithms and perhaps business relationships. Mm -hmm. And so that's an example of something that's anti-competitive that no one would have any way of knowing because on your phone it's not apparent on its face. On your phone you get the answers, but they're not the most informed answers. Well, that's a, that's a very important example. I'd also add, Al, that some uh, medium-sized companies are concerned that because the big companies have the huge lobbying uh, battalions that you described, they're able to negotiate with policymakers on a continuous basis and essentially write rules by which they're confident they, the large companies, can abide, but medium and smaller companies may struggle to abide, may struggle to keep up. I mean, that's absolutely right. And it's not just small companies. If you look at going back to the net neutrality debate, some of these fan companies were pushing regulation that really didn't affect them at all, mm -hmm. but dramatically and materially could negatively affect competitors in the media space like big cable, big phone companies that the tech folks argued required net neutrality rules when such rules wouldn't apply to them. That was mm -hmm. a very big regulatory advantage that they sought and successfully achieved during the Obama administration. So it's not just small companies need to look out for these folks. It's everybody. Mm. Greta, you were going to say something? No, I think I think just to Al's point, you know, the difference between big tech and, and medium to small tech anymore is huge, right? Facebook, Amazon, Google, Netflix. I mean, well, Netflix and Amazon to an extent – they're not competing against each other. Everyone plays in their own sandbox, right? And what they do is they now limit competition within their particular sphere of influence. And so how how does a new entrant, you know, come up in the valley anymore? Basically, the goal for a lot of these companies is to be acquired by a bigger company. Oh, you bet. So what what does that kind of do to the brilliance that has been Silicon Valley for the past 50 years, right? Mm -hmm. It was creating new companies, creating new jobs. Are we just enriching and creating a pipeline for, you know, Google and Facebook and Amazon and, and these other folks? Or are we creating this kind of rich, diverse 
new business opportunity? And and, and do, does the Valley exist in, in the same way that it does 20 years ago today? I think you would probably argue that it doesn't. And that's a great point and a great concern. If you look at the pharmaceutical industry, big pharma tends not to spend too much money on niche healthcare products that might cure a problem for a small group of people. Whereas small entrepreneurs don't have the money to spend to fix the problem either and have been squeezed out. The same thing could happen in tech where everybody's just presuming up till now that Google and others are putting all the money back into R&D to come up with the next great thing. Why? Why should they if they're already fat and happy? So it is an issue. The other thing, if you think back to the beginnings of Amazon and the impact that it had at first on mom and pop bookstores and the slow death of those with some exceptions around America. Um, I lived in Bangor, Maine for some time and all the bookstores disappeared Mm. because of Amazon and Barnes & Noble and Borders. Well, where are Barnes & Noble and Borders now? They used to be big guys. They're mostly gone. Now, if you extrapolate that platform across the economy as a whole, what other small businesses are going to be extinguished? And does the significant market power of these companies threaten small business growth in this country, which has been the hallmark of our economic growth and standing throughout the world over the past century? And Elizabeth Warren is going to talk about this in her Mm -hmm. campaign Mm -hmm. because she believes that big tech and the way that they are marching forward unchecked dramatically impacts wage growth and the middle class prosperity. Again, untested theory. Right. Not sure it'll be resonant with voters, but it's certainly a new way of looking at things. We see, we think of tech, I think, as a as a job creator and a wealth creator. But I, you're saying that Senator Warren is saying it could have uh, the opposite effect by isolating or concentrating wealth. It sounds like that's precisely right. I mean, she said in a speech about a year ago, when competition declines, small businesses can be wiped out. And our economy will suffer in ways no one can even notice or see right now, mm. again, because of the vast platforms of, for example, an Amazon. I want to switch slightly to talk a little bit about the Washington idea ecosystem, because th- we've seen something unusual in this area. In 2017, the Yale Law Journal published an article by a law student named Lena Kahn entitled Amazon's Antitrust Paradox. The author argued that the traditional antitrust focus on retail prices and consumer happiness generally, what we were talking about earlier, obscures the massive power that Amazon and its ilk are accumulating. Greta Al, has this article found a receptive audience among D.C. policymakers? I mean, I would say on the Republican side, I I, I do think especially – Ranking Member Collins at, at House Judiciary. I do think that's something that they've talked about broadly. But in in terms of our, our policymakers reading this in particular and, and being concerned, not not as much. Mm-hmm. I would say the most talk I heard about it was right when Amazon re- acquired Whole Foods. Uh, and if there was going uh. to be significant movement on the Republican side, I think it would have been right at that point. And you saw some. But but not many. Um, I do think it's probably resonated more with Democrats, mm-hmm. though. I I think I think Republicans are looking less at you know big is bad broadly and are looking at the technology mm-hmm. versus just the size of the company. Mm-hmm. Al, some thoughts on the ecosystem. I, I mentioned this because we talk to clients about 
sort of injecting ideas into the system that it's that it's still feasible. And I wonder if this article illustrates, not that we're advising any client to write a law review article, but it illustrates some kind of policy entrepreneurialism. I think it absolutely does. You know, if you look at the antitrust division at Justice, if you look at the FTC with Joe Simons, they are, as they have publicly stated, willing to investigate these big tech companies, willing to go back and look at transactions after they've been approved to see mm-hmm. if they're pernicious anti-competitive effects. And usually the way that that happens is a company comes in and says, we've noticed the following things going on and you ought to look at it. Mm-hmm. Now, then they have to do their due diligence and see if it's real and test the theory. But absolutely, policy entrepreneurialism, as you put it, can be alive and well. And I think far too often small companies don't avail themselves of that opportunity, particularly where they see that there's anti-competitive conduct going on. Mm -hmm. I feel like we had a handle on vertical and horizontal integration in the past with bricks and mortar companies, legacy companies, telecom companies. But with companies with respect to which you can't predict what business they'll be in next, it's hard to know sometimes where you're seeing integration. Or is a company buying Instagram instead of and shutting down an in-house Instagram-type unit that you knew nothing about? You just can't know if it's happening. Well, if you think back to the f- telephone industry in the 80s when Judge Green required AT&T to structurally separate, you do have precedent for dealing with vastly vertically integrated entities. Mm-hmm. Of all of these companies we've been talking about, Amazon is probably the most ripe for a threat like that mm-hmm. because of all the platforms that they have. And the article that you mentioned, the Law Review article by the, the brilliant young Yale aspiring lawyer, talks about the concept of applying public utility regulation to these vertically integrated companies mm-hmm. and requiring, for example, non-discrimination requirements with respect to sharing their platform, just like if you're a cable company or a phone company – you have to, in a non-discriminatory way, afford access to your networks for competitors so that they, too, can offer broadband over your networks and compete. Um, you could see a day down the road where an Amazon would have to offer non-discriminatory access to its platforms for sellers of products, mm-hmm. like-minded products. Well, a- Amazon increasingly is making the products that it sells as Amazon-branded products or under brand names like uh, Macy's or Saks would use store names, you know, button down is a brand of shirt, but it's a shirt made by Amazon. So you have a higher level of old fashioned integration when Amazon operates that way. I'm not saying it runs afoul of the law, but it's old school integration. Just one more thing I wanted to point out about policy entrepreneurialism. I think there's more of an appetite to look at transactions after they've occurred. In other words, once the deal has been approved by either the FTC or the DOJ, or the FCC, for that matter, competitors have the opportunity to come in and say, you know, you guys got it wrong. You said it was going to be okay, and here's a discrete example of why it isn't okay in the marketplace, and there's a competitive disadvantage or disparity, and you should go back and look at that. And the whole realm of this new competition policy thought in this ecosystem that you referred to all talks about that. Mm -hmm. For example, Senator Klobuchar's bill says... We should empower the antitrust agencies to be more aggressive in going after vertical and other deals post-merger. In other words, the analysis shouldn't stop Mm. when it's either approved or rejected. And I think that's another avenue of opportunity for tech competitors, particularly small companies. So that they don't things don't go as far as they did with with AT and T or Microsoft. Or Microsoft. That's right. Greta. Um, You know, I think I think Al's probably right. I, I think that. 
what what we're going to be looking at, I think when you talk about tech and you talk about integration of other companies, it's the the problem is I think for policymakers and th- this is less of you know folks at the FTC who are you know subject matter experts, but specifically the legislators on the Hill when they don't understand what the core business does mm-hmm. fundamentally, right? Like what is Facebook's what kind of company is Facebook? Mm-hmm. I think you get seventeen different answers if you ask members of Congress. How do you effectively prohibit them from acquiring something else? And how how does WhatsApp fit into Facebook's business model? Mm-hmm. That's something you know. It's supposed to be an encrypted messaging service, but Facebook's entire business model is against doesn't really jive with encryption. And I mean, you know, Instagram and and how how does the Instagram al- algorithm work compared to the Facebook? And so I think all of these questions, you know, broadly are something that require a lot of thoughtful people taking a really hard mm-hmm. look at it. And that's just not what happens on Capitol Hill for the most part when we try to do things quickly. And I think fundamentally the look and the the way that Congress looks at tech has changed dramatically in the past year. And how is the 2020 campaign going to change that even more? Mm-hmm. And I think we're going to see that with each new announcement on the Democratic side and potentially Republicans also echoing some of those concerns, particularly in the House, where Democrats are controlling, you know, how these messages are going to come out. I think in particular, House Judiciary could really have a very different set of talking points um, mm-hmm. than Republicans had in the past. Well, it sounds like in a, in a period of partisanship and gridlock, this is an area where not only is there some policy change possible, but maybe even inevitable. Yeah, I, I think so. And I think there's one one fundamental question, and I think that is, is going to have to probably be answered at some point, um, is Section 230, which basically gives immunity to tech companies for what's on their platform. And there's a lot of discussions, I think, that are happening quietly, like is giving tech companies immunity a real fundamental thing that we should be doing, mm-hmm. right? And as the focus turns, I think, to Facebook and Twitter as you look into the next cycle, are these companies good for democracy? And I I think that's something that a lot of Democratic candidates are going to be talking about specifically. And how, you know, if you're not responsible for what's on your platform, how do you design your product and how would you do it differently if you were? And, And those are questions that I think were not answered during the Facebook hearing, and I think probably could have been if um, you know we'd taken a little bit of a different track, especially mm. on the Republican side. But um, I think just that fundamental question, is, is America better because of Facebook and Twitter and other social media companies? I don't know well, if I the think answer that, to that. That's a great way of, of talking about the challenge, and we'll leave it there, and I'll just try and get in a couple of exit questions. Greta? What's the coolest thing you saw at the Consumer Electronics Show in February? You know, I think I'd have to say um, the Bell Passenger Drone is probably my favorite. (laughs) Um, But in terms of things that I personally could purchase, um, I think probably the LG Roll-Up TV Ah. and um, also Samsung's Frame TV, which was really awesome. Uh Uh-huh. And Al, uh, you were involved in some merger activity over the weekend. Anything you care to share with our listeners? Uh, it's true, Drew. Um, I got married over the weekend. Mazel tov. Uh, thank you. 
Um, and I uh, made much use of the Facebook platform to share with all, <laughs> all my friends uh, the happy day and the wedding ceremony and our family's participation. And it is, a, it is you know, despite the talk that we had today, it's, it is, does remain a great platform for people to connect with each other. Mm-hmm. And I think that that will remain true and probably uh, help them continue with their success, notwithstanding some of these problems. Terrific. On that note, We'll say goodbye. This has been another Brownstein podcast on tech, privacy, and competition issues. Thank you for listening to the Brownstein High at Farber Shrek podcast series. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. Visit bhfs.com for more information.